0: Namotasab more to arahato go ato, arahatur, sama, sambutasa. No more to sob, go ato, arahatur, No to sob, go ato, arahatur, sama, We all know that the Buddha taught about the realisation of the state of unshakable peace and I'm sure that's something that we all find very attractive. However, for some people this is misunderstood and results in an attitude or an appreciation of Buddhism as another form of quietism. Um, That is using the word quietism in the sense that uh, it's sometimes used. People measure progress in the spiritual journey in terms of how much time you might spend in quiet states of mind that we're successful in our spiritual aspirations to the degree that we uh, live in quietude. And and there may well be some Buddhists who interpret the Buddhist teachings like that, but there's also some non-Buddhists who seem to interpret the Buddhist teachings in that way and uh, have the impression that uh, followers of the Buddha are taking a position against uh, aggression or uh, intensity of any sort yeah. and this this is unfortunate it's uh, certainly not what the Buddha was teaching you know the Buddha wasn't talking about taking any fixed positions quite the opposite it was very explicit that uh, clinging to any fixed position is going to lead to suffering and, Certainly something uh, similarly that Ajahn Chah emphasised and perhaps once uh, rather outrageously uh, when he was asked about the the, um, comparative uh, values of becoming a Bodhisattva or becoming an Arahant, Ajahn Chah replied, well, don't be a Bodhisattva and don't be an Arahant. And don't be anything at all. If you're becoming anything is going to lead to suffering. Now that can, and I'm aware that is sometimes confusing to people because there is the generally held idea that we're supposed to be becoming enlightened. But that concept, that view, similar to the view of we're supposed to be becoming peaceful, can be, in fact, creating obstructions on in our practice. It's something worth looking more closely at and the Buddha's teachings are worth listening more carefully to. Is this really what the Buddha was teaching about? Was he encouraging us to become more peaceful? Was he encouraging us to become an Arahant or become enlightened? Recently I was... Commenting on the the discourse or the simile of the the, the heartwood uh, that the Buddha gave, and in that discourse the Buddha was very explicit, in talking about don't settle for anything short of complete awakening. Yeah. You know, don't cling to some elevated level of of uh, improved sila mm. uh, level of virtue or don't cling to some refined level of samadhi or concentration. Don't cling to initial levels of insight. Yeah. Many occasions uh, the Buddha warned us uh, about allowing ourselves to fall short of what he called the the goal of complete non-clinging, yeah. complete freedom, uh, complete awakening, and and so. Contrary to what some people might believe, it's not that Buddhism is taking a position against aggression or against enthusiasm or intensity of any kind. Uh, over and over again the Buddha was encouraging us to cultivate the kind of awareness that can accommodate, that can accommodate everything, all states of mind, the mundane and the intensity enthusiastic the agreeable and the disagreeable. Our practice is about cultivating the quality of heart, the quality of mind, the quality of awareness that can accommodate everything so that it then can be investigated, understood and let go of. And it's in the letting go that there's the realisation. It's in the letting go through understanding uh, that there's the freedom. So not clinging to peaceful states of mind, not clinging to the idea of becoming anything. Mm. But working on Mm. doing the work as needed to cultivate that quality of receptivity, that quality of awareness that can accommodate intensity so that we can investigate it. Mm -hmm. So this, this quality of awareness, this quality of open-heartedness gives us the opportunity to see more clearly. Mm. The reason we don't see clearly is because we're regularly mm. struggling. Mm. What are we struggling with? We're struggling with the passions that flare up in our hearts. Mm. Okay. We're struggling with ourselves, basically. Mm. We're struggling with our moods so if we're working on cultivating the quality of awareness that's able to accommodate our moods to accommodate liking and disliking uh, loving and hating if we're working on cultivating the quality of awareness that can receive all states of mind then there's a better chance that we'll be able to see clearly what we're dealing with ask the relevant questions like What is the cause of suffering? Where is the actual cause of suffering? The cause of suffering is not the fact that somebody got angry with me and said something unpleasant. That's the trigger. The cause of suffering is something going on inside our heart where we add something extra. We add clinging. We impose a limitation on our hearts. Because we're not living with open-hearted awareness... We don't have enough room for intensity. Somebody manages to project their aggression towards us and instead of opening up and receiving it and understanding it and responding with compassion and clarity and kindness, our habit is to cling to this painful sensation and collapse our awareness, to close our hearts down and then we suffer. And in that suffering is the lowering of our intelligence. We don't understand clearly, and sadly, regrettably, we're more likely to react in a way that doesn't bring benefit to ourselves or to others. Mm. So, in contrast to that, if we are working on the quality of awareness, which means that we're increasing our capacity to receive ourselves, to receive the states of mind, to receive all experience, the agreeable and the disagreeable, the the mundane and mediocre and the intense, then there's a better chance that we're going to be able to accord with experience. And the ability to accord with means that we don't suffer so much. All conditions... uh, uh, in a state of motion. Something that's been born is moving towards death. Everything that's arisen is moving towards ceasing. And that movement has its own natural pathway. If we understand it, we can accord with it, then we don't create suffering. If we don't understand, and we don't accord with it, we cling, we create suffering. So it's really important that we have access to this open-hearted, increased capacity of awareness is able to receive experience, not just judge activity as an obstruction to practice. Attaching to the idea of quietude as some sort of an indicator of our progress on the journey is a mistake. Hmm. Ajahn Chah talking about how to assess the value of of a meditator, he said, you can't judge a monk by what he's like when he's sitting in meditation. You judge the value of a monk, what he's like at a festival. When there's all sorts of intense sense stimulus. Does he still have access to sufficient sense of balance, of perspective, to not get lost in reactions? Uh, We regularly, as you all know, tend to get lost in reactivity. Why? Because we don't see clearly. We don't see the true nature of things. We we don't see that conditions are impermanent. And the Buddha didn't talk about impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and the not-self characteristic as something to believe in. We're not asked to believe in impermanence. We're not asked to believe in unsatisfactoriness. We're not asked to believe in not-self-nature. Rather, these pointings that the Buddha offered are indicators where to look so as to discern for ourselves, so as to see where it is, what we do that creates suffering. If something is moving and we try to stop it, we suffer. Like if you done your washing and you put the washing in the spin dryer and so the spin dryer has been going long enough and expelled enough water to take the washing out and hang it on the washing line and so you want to stop the spinner and (laughs) you put your hand in there and try and slow it down, You, you hurt yourself badly, you can break your wrist. We turned the spinner on, sent a current of electricity through the machinery and it started turning, it generated momentum we turn it off it's not going to just stop because we turned it off it's got its own way it will slow down because we've unplugged it we've turned it off it will slow down but we need to understand its nature and accord with it we light a fire in the firebox and so as to warm ourselves that's fine that's sensible and uh, but just because the firebox looks black, it doesn't look red, doesn't look like a fire, doesn't mean to say it's not hot. Mm. Children regrettably don't understand the nature of a, a firebox, and so they're regrettably likely to touch it. But once we understand the nature of the firebox, we're cautious before we touch it. Mm. We understand there's a possibility that it might be very hot and it could cause, cause suffering. So it's understanding that frees us from suffering. Hmm. Not whether the firebox is hot or whether the spin dryer is moving or not. So our relationship to all experience depends on our understanding and how do we arrive at an accurate understanding so that we can accord with the nature of things. We need this open-hearted, expanded field of awareness to be able to accommodate everything. That's a very different attitude to spiritual practice compared to taking a position for states of quietude. Now, states of quietude obviously have their place, definitely, and the Buddha spoke of the value of quietening the mind. But the motivation for quietening the mind is not because quietude is better than activity. The relative level of quietude, that's like It's like the ocean with no waves on it. It's quiet or a lake without any ripples across it. It's smooth and tranquil. But it won't be long before uh, there'll be some ripples across the lake or some massive breakers on top of the ocean. That tranquil lake or still ocean is relative calm. It's worth developing because we can see something more clearly in that state. When the state of mind is peaceful and calm, we're able to read more clearly. We can listen more accurately. Yeah. If there's always a lot of noise going on in our minds. Then we can't hear the more subtle messages. We can't read the more subtle Messages, we don't get uh, the more subtle information that makes the difference. We don't see how to let go. We're disturbed by the surface activity. So that's relative calm. But getting attached to relative calm, the Buddha warned against that, again, referring back to the Mahasaropama Sutta, you know, the discourse and the simile of the heartwood. You know, getting attached to a relative levels of calm is not it. It's understanding. Yeah. Yeah. There's also the deeper levels of calm the Buddha referred to. Yeah. 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 Some people are able to touch into, like with the ocean, able to touch into the depths of the ocean, where even though there may be some real tumultuous breakers on top of the ocean, and in the, the depths, it's still. And in that stillness, not, the stillness is not disturbed by what's happening on the surface. Yeah. Yeah. So the cultivation of, of the ability to touch into deep stillness, deep calm, is indeed encouraged. But this also is not something to be clung to. Yeah. Just getting calm, just getting peaceful is not the goal. It's really important. It's really important to have access to stillness, to have access to calm. But the peacefulness and the pleasure and the joy or even the bliss that might come from accessing states of calm, in a way, it's it's worthwhile seeing that as kind of like an accidental side effect. The real benefit of clarity is so that we can Read more carefully, more subtly. Listen more clearly, more subtly. That's the real benefit of calm. The fact that it's maybe delightful, intensely delightful, that's an kind of incidental side effect. Right? Looking, looking at a lake that's still and calm also might happen to see a stunningly beautiful reflection the stillness and calmness of the lake is one thing, but this beautiful reflection that appears is, in a way, incidental. And likewise, the, the stillness that comes with a concentrated, tranquil, peaceful mind it could be seen as incidental. It can be refreshing and delightful, but it's not the main point. And in a way, it's something we should be careful of. We should cultivate it, but we should be careful of it. Mm. Part of cultivating it is so that we know that we can say no. Mm. The Mm impulses, the wild, untamed heart that causes us so much suffering, Mm. if we don't know that we can say no to these impulses, we don't really know that we can say yes to them. Mm. We might think we can, But we don't really know we can say yes in a truly responsible way unless we know that we can say no. So that's a benefit. Mm. Restraining our attention, disciplining our attention, withholding our attention from the temptations to follow the activity of heart and mind Mm. so that we can get the feeling, get the information, get the understanding that we can say, no, we're not a slave to the activity of the world. That's it's the external world and the internal world. We're not enslaved to it. So if we can withdraw attention and access a level of calm, that's a great benefit. Mm. Then we can investigate. Mm. Investigate our relationship with the world. Is this a compulsive relationship or is it a skillful engagement? what is our motivation if we don't know that we can unplug from the world then we can't really assess our relationship with the world similar to for instance like our gadgets or using the internet are we using our gadgets are we skillfully using our mobile phone or are we being used by it are we using the internet or are we a slave to the internet well one way of assessing that is to unplug. A very skillful way of assessing that. Is one day a week, or one day a month, we unplug. We turn the mobile phone off, or don't use the Internet, feel how it feels. Then we get a reading. We get a reading on how compulsive our relationship is with our gadgets or with the Internet. Are we being pulled into activity? Or can we abide at ease? Mm. So cultivating the capacity for abiding at ease is tremendously important, but it's not something to get attached to. Mm. One way of understanding this is to view it as, as having the agility of mind to be able to abide at ease when it's called for, being able to attend to activity when it's called for. In this activity, the activity of listening to a Dhamma talk, if we can't unplug from our compulsively discriminating mind, we might miss a lot of the benefit. Mm -hmm. It's really helpful when listening to a Dhamma talk to be able to disengage from the compulsive picking and choosing, agreeing and disagreeing, our discriminative intelligence, To abide in a receptive mode. To receive what is being offered in the Dhamma talk. Mm. Mm. For most of us, when we first come across Dhamma teachings, we're not familiar with this mode of studying Dhamma. We know what it means to read books. Mm. We know what it means probably to listen to lectures, we get to go to a lecture on Buddhism and about the history of ancient Buddhism in India and how it spread to the north and spread to the east and spread to the south and this developed and that changed and then we can learn about Buddhism and the different uh, adjustments that came to the teaching and as Buddhism evolved and we can learn about Buddhism from lectures or from reading books or we can discuss Buddhism, meet with our Dhamma friends and talk about Buddhism. we have a debate about Buddhism. Yeah. Debates, Dhamma debates yeah. in Pali is called Dhammasaka. Mm-hmm. Those of you that are familiar with the Mahamangala Sutta, the Buddha talks about Kalena Dhammasakacha, a timely engaging in Dhamma discussion, Dhamma dialogue, tongue mangala is a great blessing. He also talks about kālena dhammasavana, timely listening to Dhamma. Eetang mangala is a great blessing. This is probably a skill, the skill of listening to Dhamma is something that we might have to put some effort into. Mm. Generally, the idea of engaging our discriminative intelligence feels creative, uh, and it can be creative, but it keeps us on a certain level of consciousness. Mm. Just as, you know, like looking at a lake or looking at an ocean, as long as there's waves and ripples moving across it, there's only a certain sort of experience we can have, but when the lake is perfectly still this reflection manifests it's a different experience likewise if we know how to still the heart and mind if we have access to a relative level of calm of quiet we can perhaps sense the increased receptivity that's available so the encouragement when listening to Dhamma talks is to, to put our mental acumen to one side, not because we're mentally lazy or we're not capable of engaging in a debate, but because it gives us more access to what's being offered. The cultivation of dhammasawana. Yesterday was what traditionally in, in Thailand would be called dhammasawana day. Uh, that's the moon day, that was the full moon day of this month yesterday and it was the occasion for chanting the Nambachakapavatana Sutta. It was, uh, it was the Asala Puja day where we remember the occasion the Buddha gave the first discourse, uh, the turning on the wheel of the law the first teaching of the four noble truths. And so traditionally in, as we say, in Thailand, it, uh, the teachers would talk to the gathering of the lay folk who would come to the monastery and they'd start their talk by saying, today is Dhammasavana day, the day for listening to Dhamma. Yeah. And this is a, a skill that all followers of the Buddha's teachings are encouraged to cultivate. Yeah. The ability to disengage from our discriminative faculties. Yeah which in other circumstances are very beneficial and very useful, but for the sake of being able to listen more deeply, more sensitively, we put that ability to one side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the Burmese tradition, some of you might be familiar with how they have on their temple shrines the depiction of Venerable Sariputra and Venerable Moggallana, the chief disciples. Uh, these depictions of Venmo and Venmo Moggallana, they're sitting there with their heads slightly tilted with their ear, listening to the teacher, listening to the Buddha. Uh, as we chant in the chanting, the, the word for disciple is Sāvaka. Venmo Sariputra and Venmo Moggallana were the chief Sāvaka's. The chief disciples. And it's interesting to note that the etymology of that word in the Pali language of Savaka, uh, the, the, the original source of that word is one who listens, because this is the characteristic of a student. And this, of course, is referring to the time before people had books to read or Kindles to read. Um, they, uh, they were listening. The transmission of Dhamma came through listening, through heeding, through paying attention. And it's an art, it's a skill to be able to listen in the right way. I sometimes think that, uh, I don't know if I'm correct or not, but you, you might have heard in the Mahayana tradition, there's uh, the description of the chief disciples, Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Moggallana, referred to as sound hearers. Uh, which is a not completely respectful uh, turn of phrase, but maybe it came from this, maybe it came from this misinterpretation of the word savaka mm. Whether it did or not is not the point, really. What matters is that we as disciples of the Buddha uh, come to recognize the value of training in this way, the value of being able to listen without our discriminative tendencies getting in the way. There's an occasion I can remember many years ago now, I think 1977, 1978, and I was staying in a monastery in Bangkok with my first meditation teacher, and he wanted to visit Ajahn Chah, who was also down in Bangkok at the time. Ajahn Chah was staying with some supporters out at Don Muang, which was the main airport in those days. And and uh, so we went out to visit and Lumpur Chah and pay our respects to him and, and asked if he would kindly deliver a Dhamma talk, and which he assented to the request and because my first meditation teacher, who was living in Australia, it was a well-known teacher and and he wanted to benefit from Ajahn Chah's wisdom and Ajahn Chah was, was uh, as usual and generously obliging. But before he started giving the Dhamma talk somebody reached forward and put a recorder in front of him. This was in the days of the old analogue tape recorder. And, and Ajahn Chah took the opportunity to point out then that uh, those listening to his Dhamma talk should set their heart and mind uh, in a conducive mode, conducive for listening deeply. And he likened it to the tape recorder. So just as you turn this tape recorder on, then let it run, you're not worrying about is the tape recorder recording the information, you just trust that it is. Likewise, he said that listening to Dhamma, uh, this sort of Dhamma talk, should just establish your heart and mind in the right state of contentment, of quietude, to be receptive and then trust that the teachings will be received or recorded. Yeah. And then, as and when, later on, you need them, they'll become available. In other words, putting aside concerns about, do I understand what the teacher's going on about? Can I remember this so that I can repeat it later on? I agree with this, I don't agree with that. Why didn't he say that? Why did he mix up or misquote those teachings from the scriptures? Oh, all that mental proliferation that we're all familiar with. He was encouraging putting that aside. Uh, abiding in a state of, quietude that conduces with understanding mm. Mm. and then delivered is very useful talk. Mm. so this attitude uh, this this level of quietude is functional and genuinely beneficial and certainly worth cultivating and we might think that we have access to that level of receptivity but it's not always the case I was hearing recently about how some artists were uh, interviewed and they were asked how they come to an appreciation of a piece of art and at least some of them commented that they simply view it and take it all in as a piece. Just take it all in as a piece. And what was interesting was that um, when they were shown a piece of art and invited to appreciate this piece of art, they were being filmed very closely. And later on, when looking back at those films, what was apparent was that these artists' eyes were moving all over the place, darting here and darting there. They were not in a still receptive mode, taking it all in as a piece. Mm-hmm. Research has shown that actually, on average, the eye is making selections three times in a second. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in attending to a Dhamma talk it's, uh, the more suitable mode is to close the eyes not because we're closing ourselves off from each other yeah. but rather that we all agree to enter into the inner temple yeah. meeting our inner contemplative. Yeah. Yeah. If we don't know how to access Now in a temple, that place where we take our deep quandaries, our deep concerns and ponder on them sensitively in a way that takes us to a new relationship of understanding. Mm. If we don't know how to do that, well then we're actually uh, in some ways uh, deprived or disabled. It's important that we find our own way of entering the inner temple, of meeting our inner contemplative. Mm. And sometimes closing our eyes and learning how to listen can help that. Mm. It's like this temple here. We have have five doorways to getting into this temple. Mm. We could come in through any one of these doorways... There are many doorways for entering our inner temple. What matters is how we find our own access. If we can't find our own access, if we're, for instance, still clinging to ideas about what constitutes practice, we're still clinging to uh, the idea of becoming peaceful, we don't know how to disengage or unplug from becoming then we're never going to be able to really listen deeply uh, I'm not just talking here listening deeply to the teacher from outside but listening deeply to our teacher within uh, So, thank you very much this evening for your attention <coughs> Tama Yang Tama Gata Sadhu Karan Tada Sadhu.